Lord, we just ask you to be with us as we look at this scripture today and that you will guide and lead us and have us see what you would have us see through this psalm and that your spirit will lead. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 105. Finally got done with 104. Now we're on another long, long psalm. God's faithfulness to Israel. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call on upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk you of all his wondrous works. Glory you in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and judgments of his mouth. O you seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are, are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he has commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to, unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto you, I will give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance, when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it. And when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do, wrong, do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold as a servant, whose feet were hurt with fetters, and he was laid with in iron. Until the time that his word came and the word of the Lord tried him, the king sent and loosed him and even the ruler of the people and, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into e e Egypt and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham and increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people and deal subtly with his servants. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen, and they showed his, his signs among them, the wonders in the land of Ham, and sent darkness and made it dark, and, re and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there were diverse sorts of flies, and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and broke their trees of their coast. He spoke and the locusts came and the caterpillars and, that were without number. And did eat up all the herbs of the land and devour the fruit of the ground. He smote also all the firstborn of their land and the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud of covering and a fire to give light in the night. The people asked, and he brought quail and, and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed forth. They ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and, and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labor of the people." that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise you, the Lord. Was Ham that one we were talking about today? Yes, Ham was the one oh, that yeah. we were talking about today. Yeah. Yep, and if you remember from two weeks ago, the Table of Nations, Ham is mostly, most of his descendants were in Africa and parts of the Middle yeah. East. Now, you now, I can now you're going to start noticing these yeah. things that you, that you know. 
Okay, verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Each one of these verbs in this one is an imperative. They are commands. These are not optional. Okay, these are commands that God is give, that we're getting. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Very important for us to give God thanks. It is very easy for us as humans to kind of ignore the things that God gives us. As a group, humans are very unthankful usually amongst each other and for God. But it says give thanks. And this whole idea of giving thanks is to give praise, to give laud, you know, to, to make heavy with praise. This is something that we want to give God a recognition that, God, I recognize that you have done things. Um, and it's very important for that because it's so easy to ignore the blessings of God. And this is one of the songs I like in the hymn book is count your blessings, name them one by one. It, we put our focus on what God is doing. And we really start re recognizing what he's doing. Sharon was saying that he, she prays, thank you for the air that I breathe. Thank you for giving me another day. Do we really look at being that thankful with him on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah. Uh, we have that song we sing, you are the, uh, the air yeah, that I breathe. I'm yeah. desperate for you. You know, are we truly desperate for God each day? Or are we just living our life on a routine basis? Unfortunately, usually we go through and we just live a routine life. Okay, it's another day, another, another opportunity to get up, go to work, uh, come home, uh, maybe read my Bible somewhere and pray to God somewhere in this day. But, you know, we end up with this routine where we just follow the same pattern over and over again. And it says, give thanks. And then the next imperative is call upon his name. Call upon his name. And this is something that's also important. Do we call upon God? Do we recognize that we need him? His name, his reputation, everything about God. We've talked about this many times. In the Bible, when it talks about the name of God or, or the name of somebody, it's talking about their reputation and everything that's about them. To call on the name of Jesus is not necessarily using the name Jesus. It's calling on everything that's the reputation of Jesus. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the Master. He is the one that paid the price. Because there's going to be people, and this is something, if you know multiple languages, we use Jesus, which is a Greek, Greek form of the, his name, Yeshua, which is really his name is Yeshua. So if we're going to get really picky, we should be calling on Yeshua. In the 80s, there was this big move that you had to pray to Yahweh because if you weren't praying to Yahweh, you weren't praying to the right God and all this other stuff because they were picking up on this idea of the name is the name and you've got to use the name. No, the name is the reputation and the authority of God. And the greatest example I heard somebody teach was when a police officer calls out, stop in the name of the law, he is not talking about the pieces of paper sitting in the law offices. He's talking about all the power and authority that it represents. And this is why we have to get into uh, what is his name. Uh, when, when we do baptisms, there's verses that say that we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then there's verses that say we baptize in the name of Jesus. And there are people that nitpick that, those, two, those two sets of verses to, to, to no end, when really it, the key word is the name. Yeah. <laughs> okay? The name, the reputation, the authority of 
the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Jesus, because he is God as well, so it doesn't really matter. It's God's name that you're using, his authority. So we want to be very careful. Sometimes we get wrapped up in these little minutia points that are, are totally irrelevant, and I had somebody get mad at me on one of the baptisms because I didn't baptize in either Jesus' name or the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, whichever one I used that day. But they made a big deal out of it, and it bothered them greatly. And I could show them the verses that said the other thing, but it wasn't worth trying to argue with them over the other verses, because there's verses that say, be baptized in the name of Jesus. So, but the key part of that is the name. We call upon the name of the Lord. He, because he wants us all the power and authority that he has. He's saying, call on him. And then the next part is, make known his deeds among the people. I think this is probably, the other two we fail at as Christians sometimes, but I think this make known his deeds among the people is probably where Christians fail the most. Because it's saying the people, the nations, not just the church. We need to be exclaiming what God has done to the world. Not that they're going to believe us. They're, they're going to think we're crazy. And I've told you, I used to, I used to do this when I worked in the restaurants. I, I would come in and go, you know what God has done this weekend or yesterday or the day before? He just gave me such a great blessing. They all thought I was crazy. They go, you know, and I could see it in their eyes. Okay, here he is another day, you know, giving, giving his good, good fortune over to God. But you know, it still planted seeds. And this, this, this uh, psalm is going to be all about what God has done for Israel. As you saw when we read the whole thing, the history of Israel is going to be recited and re re recovered over this. And it says, sing unto him, sing praises unto him, talk of all his wondrous works. And so, and again, these are imperatives. The verbs here again are imperatives. Sing to the Lord. I love to sing to the Lord. Uh, Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all, the, all you earth. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Make a loud noise with rejoicing praises. And then it goes into a bunch of the instruments that it uses. So God says, I want loud praise. He's not looking for perfect praise. He's not, because we can't be perfect anyway. Can you imagine? Even our professionals do not sing with perfect pitch and, and, and places. They get as close as humanly possible in many cases. But they're not perfect. God is not looking for, 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 for perfection. <laughs> Easy for me to say, right? <laughs> And then it says, sing psalms unto him. And literally this is, make music unto him. Now, I'm not a musician, so I will have to use my words and, and my voice to be able to make music to him. I love music. Uh, but he says, make music. And then I love this. Talk of all his wondrous works. Again, he, this is the repeat from the first, the first, page, uh, first uh, verse. Talk about his wondrous works. Do we do that enough? Probably not. Most people do not talk about his wondrous works, all the blessings they have. They do not see God's hand in most of what goes on in their life. This is why we need to look around and say, God, what is it you're doing? And share it with one another. The one thing, my, one of my prayers for this church is that we will start having people share what God is doing in our lives with each other and share what he's teaching over the week with each other. I get it real easy. I could share all the time because I get to teach and be the head leader. But, you know, in, in the church where I spent a lot of time, and a lot of times people would come in, and, and the first thing they would share with the people was, you know what, I was reading my Bible yesterday or two days ago, and look what God, I want to tell you what God showed me. 
Do you know how much that builds people's faith up? To know that the pastor and the teach, Sunday school teachers aren't the only ones that God speaks to and shares things with. It's very powerful when that happens. We've shared this, and Lynn, Lynn will attest to this. You know, people would meet in the middle of a, you know, of a grocery store, and they would be telling each other what God had shown them in the Bible. There'd be a Bible study going on right in the middle of the aisle of a grocery store. Uh, you went to a birthday party, and there would be a Bible study at a birthday party. This is how much importance they put on God's word and learning. All of this is how much are we willing to put into our effort with God? Are we recognizing who he is and making him special in our own life? And then if he's special in our life, we will talk about him. You know, this is the important thing. What is special in your life? What do you talk about mostly? Because that'll tell you what's important in your life. And this is something that bothers me sometimes when I'm with, other, with Christians sometimes. And you spend 15, 20, 30 minutes with them and they never bring up God or his word or anything. Not that they have to talk about him the whole time, but do we bring God up? Is he a center of our emotions and our thought patterns? Because we talk about what's important. If somebody's excited about, let's say somebody is excited about the Super Bowl today because their team is in playing the game. If their team was playing this game, if you knew them, you'd be hearing about it all this last week, probably the last two weeks, that their team was playing. But they would be talking about what is exciting to them. And we see this, and you, and you can pretty much tell when you talk with somebody, what's important to them? What do they get excited? What do they get animated about? Uh, I think I shared with you, I, I came across the GM at the TA when I was working at Popeye's, and you know he's no longer there, and I'm no longer there, and he's going, what are you doing these days? And I go, I'm a pastor, and he goes, well, I could tell you that's where you need to be because you used to get very animated when you would talk about the Bible and God because he, it was one of those things that showed. It still does. The important thing is what is important to you. We share what's important to us. We share what's going on. If we see what God's doing, we're going to share what God's doing. I, I love hearing what God is doing in people's lives because, number one, I like to know that people are growing. But by bringing God into the situations that go on, we build faith in ourselves because we're recognizing what he's doing. And we build faith in others because they see that God is still answering prayers. He's still doing things. And this is why I say this aspect is so important for us to share with one another. It's one thing to read the Bible and go, yes, God did that, you know, uh, 2,000 years, 4,000 years ago. And, and yeah, we believe it, but it's old events. And he's doing the same thing today. And we read the biographies and go, okay, God did it 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But when you're hearing it from your, your friend or you're looking at it and seeing it in your life, it is just as Loretta said, he's still doing what he's always done. And it builds faith because now we say, okay, God is still doing it for us. Now it puts more realism in the scripture saying, okay, He's doing it today. He did it then. He hasn't changed. And it builds that faith up in us that says, okay, it's not just old stories. It's just not God doing things way back then. It's him doing things today, and he's still doing the same thing, which is why I keep bringing up Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. God is still doing things the way he is. Man is still doing things the way he is. Satan is still doing things the way he's always done it. Same battles, same plans, same thoughts, same way of approaching things. Nothing new. 
All the political intrigue that we see in our country and other countries has been going on all through, all through time, all through scriptures. We talked about Nimrod this morning. There was lots of political intrigue and religious intrigue in that time. That was six, you know, 5,000 years ago. And yet, it's nothing different. It, nothing different, nothing, nothing changed. We never learn our lessons. And unfortunately, even in our own lifetime, we usually don't learn our lessons and have to learn them three or four times before we finally learn them. All right, verse 3. Glory you in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Glory. Make heavy with praise. This is what glory means. To make heavy with praise. When we give glory to God, it's not just mindless speaking. It is to really praise him and to say, why are we glor glorying him? God is pretty big on the why. Why, God, you've blessed me. This is why I recognize your blessings. God, this is, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. God does not want us to be brainless autonotrons. We're accused of by the world as being brainless, don't, non, unthinking. You know, and it's really the funny thing about it is the ones that call us unthinking have never analyzed what the world tells them about their thinking processes. They just believe it because the majority believe it. You know, it's much harder to believe something when you're in the minority and the remnant than it is to be part of the crowd. And it's very important for us. Glory, give glory to God, to his holy name, his set-aside name, his, his precious name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Do you realize that when you're seeking God, there is a great lightness and a great joy in that? I have seen this over and over. The more people seek God, the more joy there is in their life. I've seen Christians who are just miserable Christians, if they, if they are Christians, but they're not seeking God. They're not in his word. They don't care what God says. They're living like the world, and they have no joy. It has been so joyful in my life to follow after God to learn more about him, to change my way, to match him and fit his joy, have him fill me with his joy. I got saved and it was a great event in my life to change who I was. And I was only 10 years old and still very joyful in the fact that I got saved. And I've shared with you all that I filled the Sunday school bus the first Sunday after I got saved because I didn't have the answers. All I knew was I got saved and they go, well, how do you do it? I go, come to Sunday school with me. So I filled the bus, or at least half the bus. Again, this idea of seeking, I was going to bring that out and didn't get to it. Well, seek is a good word, but it, the seek was the idea of I want to find him so bad that I'm going to put all my effort into seeking God. Do we have that much desire to find God? It's many times, no, and it's unfortunate. Many times we don't have that desire to seek after God with all of our heart. And this is when Jesus gave the parable of the great pearl. The guy went out to find a great treasure and found the treasure and the buried in the field and went and sold everything he had so that he could buy the field and make it his. We have great wisdom and pearls of truth in God. Do we seek him in such a way that we're willing to give up all of myself for him? That's quite a question for us to consider. Most of the time, that's not how we seek after God. Many times we're following, you know, the, the idea of God, I'm, come, I'm over here, kind of join me, God, and God say, no, I've got truth over here for you. I've got lessons over here for you. And too many times we try to make God fit into our box 
And I can tell you one thing I have learned over the years, if you try to put God in some kind of box, he will get out of the box and do something totally different just to prove to you that he's not going to be doing what you want. Okay, which is why I think Jesus, when he healed people, did it differently almost every time that he did it, was so that somebody couldn't, you know, well, how did, how did you get healed? Well, Jesus picked up uh, mud and, and spit in it and put it in my eyes, and I, and I got healed. Could you imagine if he did that every time that people would get this, how do you heal blindness? You get mud and you spit in it and you put it in their eyes. You know? uh, I believe Jesus did it on purpose a different way all the time so there wouldn't be this, this doctrine of uh, this is how you get this to go through because he knew the way people think. And we seek God. God, what is it you want done? How do you want it done? Do you realize that the how is probably the most important part because every church does things differently and it's right for that church and may not be right for another church? And all the, so many times you see a church get real successful with some program that God gives them and then they package it up and market it to everybody else and nobody has the same results they do. Well, of course, it's not for them. It's not bad. It's, not, it's just not what God put for that church. So we want to be very careful. What is God teaching us and how we're going to follow him is going to be individualized. Individualized for each person. Individualized for each church. And we look at God and say, God, I want to seek you. I want answers on how to do these things. So we want to be able to look at that. And it says seek in the same, same thing, desire, demand, require. Seek the Lord and his, and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Okay, this is the, we're, we're looking at the Jewish poetry here. And remember, they do parallels. They, they say something and repeat it. Say something and repeat it. Or they say something and say the opposite of it. And this one happens to be a say something and repeat. So we're going to see this in couplets all the way through here. Seek the Lord and his strength. We need to be seeking him so much, so often, and his power. We really need to recognize, I can do nothing without Christ, but with Christ I can do all things. With God I can do all things. Isaiah tells us that you will fly with wings of eagles, we will leap over mountains, you know, all these different things that he tells us we can do in God. If we seek him, we'll get that faith, we'll get that strength. Yeah, and that's what his seek his face is. But I think it's a little bit even more than presence in this case, because it would be like, if I really wanted to go see the governor or the president, president, what would I do to find, to get an audience with them? And that's what this seek his face is, to get an audience with God, which is presence in one sense, but it's more than, it's more than just the presence. It's, I want an audience with him. I want to be face to face with him. And that means I'm communicating with him. He's communicating me with me because I could get into the presence of God without having an audience with God. I could get into the presence of the governor, you know, technically, without having an audience. I could go to the same room that he's in and the same place that he's given his speech. I'm in his presence. I haven't had a face-to-face conversation with him and, a, I, and I have not had an audience with him. So this one is where he's saying God seeks an audience. We seek an audience with him. We seek to see his face and be right one, talking back and forth with him. And this is the important thing. What relationship do I want with God? Do I want to be just in his presence, which is better than not being in his presence? 
Or am I looking to be in audience with God? I want to be able to talk with God one-on-one. And that, we have that power because of uh, the righteousness of Christ. We have the ability to come into the throne room of heaven, into the holy place. The, the tabernacle's temple, the temple's uh, curtain has been torn between the holy place and the holy of holies. We have direct access with God. That was something the Jews did not understand. And here David is saying, I want a face-to-face audience with you, God. I don't want to be secondary. I don't want to get it from somebody else. I want to see your face. I want to talk with you, God, and hear your word. And this is why this is a very special opening to this, this psalm. He told Moses that you cannot see my face and live. We, even to this day, can't see his face, but we get to talk with him face to face. We don't have to go through intermediaries. We don't have to offer sacrifices to be able to talk to him. So no, nobody sees his face even to this day because his holiness and his righteousness would be such that if any human being in our flesh saw his face, we would die. And this is the thing, even the angelic forces when they showed up. What happened every time somebody got into the presence of an angel, and an angel's just a reflection of God's presence, they would fall flat on their face and and usually would use the word as if dead. They just collapsed. And that was in the reflection of God's glory. Does that have anything to do with the Jewish people, the way they feel about Jesus? When you see his face, and he's God... In the case of the Jews, Jesus just failed to deliver them from Rome. So as far as they're concerned, he's a false messiah. He did not complete what what the messiah was supposed to do in their recognition. Now, if they look into Isaiah 53, they look into various things where it talks about the suffering, suffering messiah. They kind of ignore those ones because they don't fit into their theology. And this is something we always have to be careful of, not ignoring verses just because they disagree with what we tend to believe. Calvinists will do this a lot. They'll build this whole thing about God only selecting certain people to be saved, and they'll give you all the verses, and there's plenty of them that teach that. I know that we, and most people like to just get rid of them. I don't want to think about them, but there are lots of verses that talk about predestination and election and God choosing. There's also lots of verses that say whosoever will. And so how do we make those things come together? I've spent off and on over 44 years trying to figure out how they come together, and I don't have a clue. All I know is God's a whole lot smarter than me, and he knows how they work. Because it is very difficult, because you have to deal with the predestination verses. You can't just ignore them and come up with a doctrine that, that ignores them, but you also cannot, if you're on that side, ignore the whosoever will. And usually a Calvinist, their definition is that it's whosoever will that is called. And I go, no, you cannot add your doctrine into the verse. The verse has to stand up on its own. And this is something we have to be careful that we don't read what we believe into a verse. And it's easy to do, especially when you've been taught something as a young kid or a young adult and you've believed it all your life and all of a sudden you come across a verse that doesn't agree with what what you think you believe. And so you have to sit down and really be a good Berean and, and study and understand. The Jews reject Jesus for just that reason. They believed that the Messiah was going to come. They ignored all the suffering, suffering verses and said the Messiah is going to come. He's going to deliver us. He's going to make us the center, the center government of all the world. And if they don't do that, they're a false Messiah. 
So Jesus is considered a false messiah to them because he, they know he claimed to be a messiah. Even now. Even now. Oh yeah, they definitely still, because he failed to make them a nation. There are Jews coming to Christ, and that's happening, and it always, always has happened. As a nation and as a majority, not yet. And, but we do know that that's coming. Revelation tells us that it's coming, that they're going to recognize when they're going to start following the Antichrist because he's going to give them peace, he's going to give them their temple, he's going to do all these things, and he's going to look like a Messiah. He's going to look like everything's working out. Jerusalem is going to be a center of things, and all of a sudden he's going to turn against them, and they're going to realize that this was not the Messiah. And they're going to realize that they were tricked by Satan, and then they will turn to Christ, and then Christ will come, and come back, and he will establish the millennial kingdom where they will have what they, he will be the Messiah that, they, that they've been waiting for. But again, why do they have so much trouble with all of this? Is simply because they have a theology, and everything has to be meshed through that theology when they read the scripture. I want to be careful when I say just the Jews, because many Christians do the same thing. This is what I believe, this is what it means, and they read, the, they read their theology into the verse. Just like I said, Calvinists read into whosoever will, they add, they add words that aren't there. Whosoever will, who is predestinated. But that's not what those verses say, and there's no way they can read, read that into it except that by using their doctrine. Baptists will read verses about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they usually discount them as that was for their days, and God no longer moves that way. Pentecostals may go too far the other way and say, you know, God always has to move this way, and if he's not moving this way, then something's wrong with you. We have to be careful not to read our doctrine into any verse, any verse, whatever it might be. This is something that why I encourage people. We need to be good Bereans. We study. Why do we believe what we believe? And I've said it over and over. I don't expect anybody in this church to believe what I believe beyond Jesus being the Son of God and being the only way to salvation and the, Bible and the resurrection and the Bible being God's Word. Other than about those four or five points, there's not anything that I'm going to say you have to believe exactly the way I do because it's important that you know why you believe it, that you can defend what you believe. I will preach what I believe. If there's controversy, I'll tell you what the other stories are. And if you say, well, that's what I believe, fine, be my guest, but I'm going to tell you why I believe what I believe. And I understand if you want to believe the others, especially you know, anything that's very mainstream and everything, I'm going to have no problem. The one thing I can tell you is one of, the, one of the things I have learned over my lifetime, the majority is almost always wrong. So anytime you're looking at saying, I believe this because most people believe it, you better start looking at it a whole lot closer to know why you believe it. It's yep. Because it basically is following the world. You may be following other Christians, but just because... Just because all the Christians are, most of the Christians are doing it doesn't necessarily mean it's right. One of the problems with democracies and republics is it's built on majority rules, and the sad thing is majority is almost always wrong. And we have proof of that. You know, the scripture's full of it. I have never been able to find a place in the scriptures where the majority has been right. Prophets standing up against the majority of the people. The king standing up against the majority of the people. The majority, the majority of the disciples picked Matthias to be the replacement for Judas, and that wasn't God's pick. He picked Saul and turned him to Paul. We look at this. Majority is not the way to make your decision. Now, that doesn't mean the majority is always going to give you the bad decision and be wrong, but you need to be able to look. Just because the majority says something does not mean it's the way to go. You need to know why you believe it and understand it. 
Because if we go with the majority in our world, then we should be evolutionists. Because that's what they believe. And many of the nominal churches believe in evolution, people. This is, they throw out the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is why I teach the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because I want people to understand that they are true. And they, we base everything that we believe on those. Because they are the first mention of so many things. The first mention of government. The first mention of marriage. The first mention of family. The first mention of sacrifice. The first mention of sin. The first mention of death. There's a rule in the to the first mention and see what God started it because everything flows within the first mention. So in Genesis, you're going to find the first mention of just about everything there is to, to be mentioned in the Bible. So we really need to know the book of Genesis so that we know what God says about things from the beginning. And it's very important for us to understand those things. So, where did the Jews from their books get this idea that Jesus was going to be a, a reformer? Uh, All the prophets talk about the Messiah establishing the kingdom and Israel being the center of all of, all of government in the world. Okay. That is very clear. That, that's a, that is a good teaching because that is what he's going to do on his second coming. He is going to make Israel the center. He's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. It'll be the center of everything. But they expected him to be doing that originally. On his first coming. On his first coming. Because, because if you read the scriptures, there's no clear distinction that there is a first and second coming other than it's very clear the Messiah is going to suffer and die. And they kind of put it somehow at the end. I don't know how they get an eternal, an eternal kingdom and then throw the suffering at the end of that. But they do. Even having said that, we need to be careful as Christians that we don't do the same thing. It is very easy for us to get so stuck in the way we think that we will not give God room to be God and do things his way. I am not going to be one that says, I mean, we're getting close to the end times, but could there be some valley that we don't know of that may take 10 or 20 or 100 years and we're, and we're oblivious to it because we are looking at like the Jews, it's got to happen this way? And I tell everybody, when I've studied the book of Genesis, or Revelation, it's amazing over the 40 year, 44 years I've been studying in the book of Revelation, how many things have changed. The dogmatic statements that used to be made in the, 80s, the 70s and 80s about Revelation are totally out the window nowadays as, as, as things have gone. And I think one of them was the, the fact that the whole world would watch the witnesses as they died and resurrected. As late as the 80s, that was, it has to be symbolic. How can the whole world watch them? Well, we now know in the, in the 21st century, that would be a piece of cake. You put a camera on them and put it on the satellite and 24-7, the, the watch the witnesses 24-7. We know exactly how it would be done today, but for millennia, actually, it was all symbolic. The whole world can't watch this. God is just being, using hyperbole and saying that the whole world's going to watch this event. It's going to be a big event for some people. So we want to be very careful how we read these things and how dogmatic we get, especially about future events. We need to keep this in mind that when we look at these things, look at what it says and believe what it says. Don't try to make things into symbols all the time. Now, the symbols can be good, but we want to be careful. God says what he says in the first rule of hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation, is... If it, makes, if it makes sense, logical sense, then, it, then treat it that way. 
If you find out that it cannot mean, make sense, then, then you might look for the symbolism in it. But even with that statement, we had to be careful because we go back to the witnesses. It made perfect sense for everybody to say it, it had to be symbolic because you could not see how it was going to be fulfilled, even though it was a very clear statement that the whole world would watch. But there was no way the whole world could watch until very recently, which is some of the ways we know we're at the end times is because some of the things that used to make no sense whatsoever, we look at it and say, boy, this sure makes a lot of sense to us today. Wow, you know, this is like, you know, we look at this and say, the whole world watched the witnesses that nobody can buy and sell without, without the mark. It'd be real easy in our day and age, the way that we don't use cash in our day and age to have a mark that's put into your body, which would be a computer chip as we know it, but it would be that you can't buy or sell without it. Real easy. We understand it now. It hasn't been understood for a long time. For millennia, it wasn't understood. It had to be a symbolic statement. We now understand more about it. And the more we understand it, the more we see how it can happen, the more I get excited about being at the end time. Yeah, likewise, didn't the Jews in the books that they read, weren't they clued in as to uh, Jesus uh, fulfilling his power uh, was to be the second uh, coming? There's nothing in their books that talk about a second coming because they didn't believe in the, they believed just in one coming of the Messiah, setting up the kingdom. Now, Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest statements, and they, that's Messianic prophecy, and they know it. And they, they don't, they, they kind of, it didn't make sense to their theology, so they ignored it. In Psalm, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew that that was a Messianic prophecy, but again, they ignored it because it made no sense to them in their theology. And this is why I say we always have to be careful that we don't put our theology above God's word. All denominations have some problem with putting their theology above God's word. When they read something that disagrees with their theology, they ignore it usually. Instead of struggling with it and saying, okay, how does this fit? Does it change what I believe? Should it change what I believe? And we need to struggle. And this is what true study of God's word is. When we come across something that challenges us, we need to get into the word and say, okay, God, I need an explanation. And I've shared with you, when I was a teenager, I went to lots of different churches. My dad was in the Navy, and everywhere we moved, we went to a different denomination, it seemed like. And many times I would have the church use the same verse and teach totally opposite points of view from the same verse. So I, many times I remember going to God and going, God, this cannot be correct. This verse cannot mean two opposing things. Help me understand what is true. And I struggled with this as a teenager. This is why I'm very sensitive to this whole thing because I, I had exposure to multiple denominations and it was good because it made me at a young age struggle with doctrinal theological views trumping scripture. And so it's very important for us to look at what do we believe, why do we believe it? God, tell me why this is true. What does it mean? How does it, how does it fit in? Because it's very important for us to come to those areas, not just believe it because we've taught, you know, that we were taught it, not, not believing it because Pastor Andrew, back when I was 12, taught a lesson, and this is what I remember him saying, and we get stuck with that, which is one of the reasons I'm very picky about who teaches children in Sunday school, because if you teach a child incorrectly, you're setting the foundation of their incorrect thinking for the rest of their life, unless they come across a teacher who 
challenges what they believe and, and then they're willing to take that challenge and analyze what they, what they believe. Well, you're, you're hurting, you're, you're putting, putting condemnation upon yourself. This is something I've done, especially with teachers over my lifetime. They'll say something, I'm going, are you sure that's biblical? Where is that found in the Bible? Whether they're right or wrong, I want to make sure they know what it is. Because if they something, especially if I don't, sometimes it's really, are you really sure that's in the Bible? I've never, I don't I can't recall that. So, you know, go find it. You're not the only one I've done that with in my lifetime. So it's been something I've done a lot with teachers because I want them to think about what it is they're teaching, why they're teaching, how they're teaching. But even with Christians, we need to look at what we believe and why we believe it. This is why Peter says we're to be ready always to give an answer or an apology in the Greek, which means to give a reason for, which is what an apology really is, even in our day, even though we use the word apology just to say you're sorry, but it was really to give a reason for what you did. So it's not just to say I'm sorry, but I am sorry I did this and I won't do it because this is why I did it in the first place and I'm not going to do it again, or there's no way I'm telling you sorry because this is why I did it and I think I'm right, you know, which would again be an apology. It'd be a little harsh, but it would be an apology. And Peter says, be ready always to give that apology. Give the reason for what you believe. And this is something I've said. I don't expect people to agree with me, but can you defend what you believe? I'm going to tell you what I believe. It's up to you to be able to defend what you believe. We can have a good discussion about it even, as, as long as you're not going to sit there and say, you've got to believe this way. Because I'm not going to sit there and tell you, you've got to believe everything that I teach. Because I can be wrong just like anybody else. I've studied hard and I've studied long and I have a good insight on a lot of things, but I can get wrong. And we need to be able to say, why do you believe what you believe and be able to defend it? And this is why I encourage our church. I want good Bereans in this church. I want people studying and know what you believe. If you don't believe what I believe, fine, that's great. Go find out what you believe and be ready to give that answer. Well, the neat thing is I have you and I have Pastor Dennis also, and I'm grateful for both of you as friends too. Because when I run into one of those scriptures that turn me upside down and I don't understand it, I get on the phone to you or Dennis. And we all need somebody that we can do that with. If you're not real good at getting in and digging into things, you need somebody who is your discipler. I have people that when I come across something, when I've studied and it comes across and it's a little unusual or I've never heard anybody else, there's people I talk to and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking this verse means. What, what do you think about that? Which, of course, challenges them to get in and look at it. But there are people that I... Now, my oldest son and even my daughter to this day are still calling me now to ask questions because they're hearing something in their church. They're hearing something that they're studying and then going, what about this? What about that? Now, when my oldest son calls me, it's kind of interesting because he already knows how to use the same tools that I use. So when he asks a question, he is the only person who asks me questions that really make me struggle and think. Most of the questions I've dealt with in some time in the past, in most cases, he asks me questions. He's the one that can stump me and go, you know, son, I'm going to have to go do some research on that question <laughs> because he's already used the books that I would use. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go and pray and seek God and, and, and look for an answer. And he's done the same thing that I would do with my disciples. I've been studying. This is what I think. What do you think about it? We need those people. We need people we go to for advice and, and clarification, whoever it might be. And it doesn't have to be the pastor. It doesn't have to be. It just means somebody that you trust that seems to know more than you know about the Bible. So if you're a brand new Christian, it could be almost anybody because <laughs> almost anybody knows more than you do. 
If you've been around for a long time, you may need a teacher or a pastor somewhere to be your, be your discipler. And then, of course, the, next, the other side of that is who are you discipling? Who are you pouring in your knowledge to? This is important for each one of us. For those of us that have, that have families, our primary one that we should be pouring into is our family. My family's older now. They, they're pretty much on their own. They're not needing me as much as they used to. I need to find other people to disciple. The ones who discipled me have to be moving on to other people to disciple because, yes, I'm still looking to them for certain answers, but I am not calling them all the time and seeking their advice all the time like I used to. So we all need somebody that we go to, but we also need somebody that we're pouring our life into. Because if we're taking in lots of information and never pouring it out, we become the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is mineral rich and very strong, but because it has no outlet, all that nutrients become death. And if we don't pour out what God's teaching us, it really produces death in our life and not life. I But that's the fun part about it. I love the same way. I've got to tell people what I'm learning. It is fun to tell people what I learn and share it with people. And when I have somebody to disciple, it's even better because it's like, let's get down, let's get down into God's word. Let's look at his word. And we need people that we get together with once in a while just to open the word and pray with. We need also people on our own level where we just share back and forth with them and saying, you know, I just need something. Especially men need to th this activity because men like to be isolated and, and not joined together. My goodness gracious, we sure didn't go very far today. <laughs> Let's go and pray. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word. We thank you and, and look to you and and Lord, we ask that we learn to give thanks to you and that we learn to celebrate your works in our life and that we share those with others and that we declare your works in, uh, in all that you're doing. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.